Hey guys, thank you so much for joining us for the NCC podcast. God is doing so many great things in our community, and I trust that he's doing great things in your life as well. And I trust that God is going to speak to you through this message. The book of Matthew was written primarily for Jewish Christians. It was written to show them the link between their faith and what Jesus came to do. And so the author does some very specific things in crafting the narrative. He does some very specific things in what he chooses to highlight. As we have talked about, um, the book of John tells us that if all of the things that Jesus wrote were actually, that Jesus did had actually been written down, that there would be too much to even for the world to handle. So we know that the authors, underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chose what to record. And so what they chose to record is really, really important for us. And in the book of Matthew, um, the author is doing something that's really important. He is showing that Jesus is the Messiah. He is showing that he is the anointed one. He is showing that he's the one that they had been waiting for, not just another Messiah, but the Messiah. And so he does this um, in three ways. One, he shows him as the son of David, because of course, God had promised that David's throne was never, ever, 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 ever going to go away, that there would be someone who would fulfill David's throne forever and ever. And so he shows him as the heir to David's throne. That's really important. That was a king in the time of Israel. Very important. Then he shows him as a teacher like Moses. Now, Moses in the Jewish faith was the cornerstone. He was the authority. He was the one who God picked by sending a burning bush, right? Spoke to him out of that burning bush, said, I want you to be my representative to the world, to to specifically to the Egyptians on behalf of me, regarding the Israelites. You see that kind of relationship there? And I want you to speak for me. And then he he goes, and all of these things happen in Egypt. You can see it in Prince of Egypt. It's not really completely accurate, but it's a great movie with wonderful music. And so they pull him out, and, and, and then in the scriptures, what it tells us is that God invites Moses to a mountain. And he says, come to this mountain. Nobody else can even touch the mountain. They touch the mountain. Even animals touch the mountain. They have to die. Nobody can touch the mountain. Only you can come up on the mountain. When you come up on the mountain, I'll speak just to you. I'll give you the law. You'll go down and talk to the people. See that separation? And so the author is saying Jesus is an authoritative teacher like Moses, but he sets him up in this story so differently. Because Jesus goes up on the mountain and invites the people to come and sit with him. And he doesn't get the new law from God and then tell the people. Instead, he begins to speak and to teach as the authoritative leader, as the one who can speak 
for God and as God. I mean, it's, it's this beautiful moment where he is showing that he is Moses. He also goes and shows that he is Emmanuel, God with us later on, but that's not what we're talking about here. The Sermon on the Mount is the portion of scripture where the author is telling us, hey, this is the guy because he is taking the place or he is the Moses in this new story. Okay, so that's where we're at. See where we're at? All right, great. So we've gone through chapter five. We've gone through chapter six. Chapter five is is really about kind of setting the stage. And and it's showing that Jesus's way is not an easier way, right? It's not about lowering the bar. It's about raising the bar. Okay, so it's not, hey, you know, all those laws and all those things, just forget about them. No, instead he's saying, hey, not only is that law important, but actually my way is higher than any way you've ever seen because my way looks at your heart. I care about your motives. I care about why you do things. And ultimately, I care about the people around you. And so you see this this beautiful picture where he's crafting and he's going, hey, you know, this used to be the bar. Now the bar's here. This used to be the bar. Now the bar's here. Here, that, that used to be the bar. Now raise it again. And he keeps doing that over and over and over again. And we get into chapter six and, and there's even more where he, he's talking to them about even when you're doing good things, the way you were doing good things wasn't good enough because you were doing it for the wrong reasons. And it goes through, and, and in the middle of all of this, Jesus so beautifully tailors it. He, he sets this whole new way of living. He juxtaposes it with the old way of living. And then he says, you know what the crux of everything is? Who you're serving. Your worldview. You're, you're the ultimate master of your heart. And instead of setting it up between God and the devil, which can we be honest, that would be what I would think, right? You're going to use God's way or you're going to choose the devil. But see, God and the devil are not opposites, not in Christian thought. See, see, God created everything, which includes Lucifer, who is known as the devil. So he is not his equal. Do you see what I mean? In Eastern thought, good and bad are, are kind of these equal things where, you know, it's like the yin and the yang, and, you know, they kind of give and take, and you have to have dark and light and all of these different things. That's not the way Christianity is. We believe that there is God, and none other is his equal. And so Jesus sets it up, and he says, your choice is between my way and, get this, and mammon. And mammon is a weird word because it can be translated as money. But it also can be translated as riches or the world system or materialism. In other words, it's will you choose my reality which gives meaning to the material world, but is not based on the material world, or are you going to choose a reality that's defined only by what you see with your physical eyes? Do you see what I'm saying? So are you going to choose to let your identity, to let your trust, 
to let your self-worth be all about the way the world system defines you. You know, the job you have. The amount the market says you're worth. What you have. What socioeconomic class you're in. What political class you're in. All of those things that the world wants to use to put you in a box. Or are you going to allow your identity to be fully and totally secure in God and serve him as master? Let's think of it another way. Um, You know, like when somebody works somewhere here, like sometimes you'll have like a little shirt and it has like, you know, the, the logo. Or if you work for the military, you wear a uniform, right? And everybody knows from the uniform, from the shirt, from the whatever, who you serve, like where, where you work, what, what's like you are with that group, okay? It's real easy to see. In fact, uniforms are so important in war that they're, they're talked about in the Geneva Conventions. That's how important they are, Right? What identity are you choosing to put on? Who do you want to be identified with? Right? Do you see what I mean? When you think about yourself, are you all of these things, and then, yeah, I also go to church? Or what God came to do, what Jesus came to do, was give us a brand new identity that would bridge across every gap. I have a a friend who's in New York City, and he's radical. He's amazing. Um, He's a convert. He became a Christian when he was 20 years old. His background um, is everybody in his family was from the Jewish faith, and he grew up in New York, and he became a Christian. And, man, he's just this amazing guy. He he works all over the world. He works with the um, unreached people groups in, in many different, very difficult nations. And he's just not afraid. And he's not afraid of controversy at all. So when I tell you what what happened on Sunday in his church, you won't be surprised. See, his church is full of every nation because they're in New York. Every nation, like lots of them, literally over 100 different nations. So on Sunday, the Ukrainian people in his church And some of the Russian people in his church got up on stage together. And they said, we have an identity that's higher. Well, I don't like that. I'm telling you, that is how radical this message is, is that we have a higher identity. Do you see what I'm saying? So that is what Jesus is coming and saying. If that made you feel uncomfortable, think about how, right, Think about how his audience felt. Okay? When he is basically blowing up all of these identity factors, just one after another, boom, boom, boom. And he's saying, no, there's a higher identity. You need to find yourself in me. And so now we get to get to chapter seven. Aren't you excited? I'm excited. Are you excited? I'm so excited. All right. Let's start with verse 1. Do not judge and criticize and condemn so that you will not be judged. For just as you judge others, so will you be judged. 
and in accordance with your standard of measure, judgment will be measured to you. Do not judge and criticize and condemn so that you will not be judged. For just as you judge others, so will you be judged. And in accordance with your standard of measure, judgment will be measured to you. Okay, so we've all heard this, right? I mean, you know, this, this is like the one scripture that I think people who don't know anything about the Bible know. Because anytime you say anything, they're like, don't judge. And you're like, that is a scripture. That is accurate. And so sometimes we think about this scripture, I think, in terms just of God, right? So I'm not going to judge you so that God won't judge me. And I think that that's kind of accurate a little bit, right? I mean, you know, if you're not willing to give mercy, if you're not willing to forgive others, the Bible says that God will not be willing to forgive you, right? But, but at the same time, we have to realize that the Bible tells us that God's mercy is new every morning. Okay, so, so there's, some, there's some tension here. And I think this scripture means more than just that. I think, it's, I think it really has implications for our life. It's not just like if I judge you harshly, then I'm going to have a boss in, in the future that judges me harshly. Yes, there's the concept of sowing and reaping. But, but I, I think there's even more. Let's dig even in deeper, right? I, I really think that this is tapping into something that is so deep in each of us. Because when we take an attitude of judgment towards others, we actually invite them into an attitude of judgment towards us. And so tonight, I want to just take a diversion for a bit after this first scripture. And I want to talk to you about how we can end up in a world of hurt and completely self-deceived just because we have taken on the attitude of judgment and how we can get there and how it impacts our relationships. Are you ready? I'm ready. It's going to be awesome. Okay. Let's talk about the moment where we choose how we're going to judge a person. So Philip has a really bad habit. He's not here, so I can tell you. He has a really bad habit. This is his bad habit. He says, I'm going to be home at 530, and he is not. This has been going on for many, many years. He comes home at 5.45 or 5.50, and he forgets to text me. And can I just be honest? That drives me absolutely insane. Anybody else have something that petty and stupid in their life? Thank you for your honesty. Has has this ever happened to you? Like, it's like, okay, so it's like, we've been together for 25 years. Is this May? Wow, we've literally been together for 25 years. We've been dating for 25 years. We will have been married for 18 years on the 29th. I am so glad I'm saying this out loud because maybe I won't forget my anniversary like I have so many other years. But anyway, um, we've been together a lot of years. This steer still just irritates me. I don't, ah, it's rough. Okay, so let's say that he, right, he, he texts me on, on his way home or texts me and says, hey, I'm walking out of the church. I'll be home in, you know, two and a half minutes because that's how close we live. And 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes go by, all right? I'm like, where are you? you know, what's going on? I have a choice at that moment, right? I can give him grace 
And I can go, ah, oh, you know what? He probably was, was, was counseling somebody. Oh, you know what? He's had a hard day. Oh, you know what? I can do that. Or I can, what? I can judge him. I can judge him. This is the problem. When I judge him, I am betraying myself. Because I want us to have a great relationship. I want, do you see what I'm saying? I want to give him mercy. But I'm, instead of doing what I have an impulse to do, right, instead I'm going to judge him. So I'm going to judge him, and I'm mad. So he walks in, and he's like, I'm so, so sorry. You know, so I'm judging him, but this is the problem when I get into that stance is my heart can, if I don't watch it, go to war. So here I am, and here's my action, okay? But underneath, depending on the way that I am being towards him, my heart can be at war or my heart can be at peace. Now listen, I want to make this really clear. The action can be exactly the same, but the way he feels it, the way I feel it, the way that it affects our relationship will be completely different depending on my way of being. He's only going to see this, but he's going to sense this. Okay? So I say these words when he comes home. Hey, I really don't feel very cared for when you don't let me know you're going to be late. Okay. My heart's at war, and I say that. I don't feel, right? I may even say it with the same tone. But my, you know what I'm talking about. But my heart is at war, right? Versus my heart is at peace. This is the problem, is when I have a judgmental stance, I have already decided who he is in the situation. What, what are some things that I could be thinking about him? He's, come on, just call out. He's immature, yeah? Selfish. Oh, I, I came up with immature, sorry. Selfish. Inconsiderate. Inconsiderate. Um, all kinds of different adjectives, right? You could, you could say, oh, well, he's... He's lazy. He's trying to get out of helping with the kids, right? I could come up with all kinds of different words. Okay, if I am judging, right, because a lot of judgment has to do with motive. So if I'm judging and I have attached to him those adjectives, how am I going to treat him? Like, you know what? He's just immature and I just need to teach him, right? So how am how am I going to act towards him? I'm not, I'm not going to probably be very kind. I'm probably going to be patronizing. Babe, right? So then, how is he going to perceive me? What are those words going to be? You're uh, come on, nag, right? You're petty. Gosh, like, you can't be pleased. Why should I even try? Right? You don't see me. You're again, do you see all of this? Now, tell me this. Is he more or less likely to come home on time with my current attitude? Less, right? Because what's the point? But this is the worst part. 
when he comes on home on time the next time, am I going to be pleased or not pleased? I'm not going to be pleased. I'm going to be ticked. You know why? Because I've already decided who he is. And when his behavior proves me wrong, do you see what I'm saying? When his behavior proves me wrong, then I'm upset about it. That's how you can always tell if you have put yourself in a place of judgment towards a person. And if you have an attitude of a heart at war, when they do the right thing, you're miffed. You're not satisfied. Your heart doesn't become at peace. See, when my heart is at war towards somebody, when I have chosen to judge them, I am deceiving myself because I'm inflating their faults and inflating my virtue. Now, look, y'all may never have done this before, but I'm just telling you how it works in the D's house, all right, is when I get into these moments, and I've been with him for 25 years. I've been married for 18, so I have had a few, okay? I don't need your help. I'm good. Nope. I've got it all under control. Babe, can I help with the baby's bottle? No, you just sit there, right? Okay? Okay, well, thanks, babe. Yeah. Right? My attitude, my attitude isn't right. I, I, there's nothing he can do to please me. He can't, he can't do anything to help me to please me. He can't, because my heart has already judged him. I have already written, do you see what I'm saying? I have already put him in a box. I have put a label on him. And now he is getting the just desserts for the way that I feel, right? The same measure of mercy that you give is the measure we receive. Because now I'm judging him and he's judging me. And we have a house at war. And it's a spiral because I start treating him like he's immature and he starts treating me like I'm unreasonable. And then I start recruiting allies. Mama, you would not believe the way that he's acting. Now mama's miffed. My mother is great. My mother, anytime I complain about my husband, says, well, you know I'm always on his side. That's true. That's a good mom. But... I start recruiting allies. Maybe I start talking to the person at work who has a terrible relationship, and I know it, but I'm talking to them because I know that they'll badmouth my spouse and be on my side, right, and feed that war. And so now they're speaking into it, and now I've got my allies. Well, now he's got his allies, right? Do you see how this happens? How you can end up with something so petty in the beginning, but because I went in with a heart of judgment, when, because I went in without mercy and because I chose to stay there, this is what's so sad is that when I judge, I stop seeing that person as a person and I start seeing them as a problem and as an obstacle for me to overcome. They're just a bump in the road on my way. And if you asked me what I wanted, what would I tell you? I want him to come home on time. I want him to be more considerate. I want him to do whatever. But he can't even fix the problem. Or you say, well, yeah, eventually it would. I mean, if he came home every time, like, for a year, it would be totally great. 
but my behavior isn't likely to prompt that kind of response. Do you see what I'm saying? It's this cycle. The Bible can be read on so many different levels. And I, when I look at this scripture and I see people in my life who are so incredibly judgmental and so incredibly harsh, thinking it's going to change others. And instead, it is just prompting those other people to judge them and to see them as problems. And don't we see this in the whole world right now? Where people just see each other as problems and obstacles instead of human beings? You may say, Destiny, how do I get out of that cycle? I start reminding myself that this is a person that Jesus loves, that has hopes, dreams, imaginations, and thoughts that are equally valid to my own, that is a Christ image bearer. And I can get out of that box of judgment. You know, one of the other things that keeps us in that box is, is because judging, it really comes from not understanding kind of what's going on. We are all going to have conflict because we see the world differently. Philip would not care if I was 20 minutes late everywhere I ever went. He doesn't see that as important. It's not like he's holding me to a different standard. He just has a different worldview than I do, okay? So it's going to be natural that we're going to come into conflict. If you stay in this church long enough, you're going to come in conflict with somebody. We say that community is like created when you get offended and then get over it, right? When somebody irritates you on a Sunday morning or sits in your spot or doesn't remember your name or whatever it is, and then you just get over it. Then, then you can be like, yeah, this is my place. I love this. This is great, right? Because that happens. As a pastor, do you know how many times I've had to just get over it? Right? But it's worth it because it's worth it for community. So if we're going to have conflict but we don't want to have our hearts at war, we need to be aware of some of the differences in the way that people perceive conflict. Can I help you with this just for a few minutes before we get back to it? Because I think this could be really, really helpful to you. Okay? So this is just to kind of raise our awareness that conflict is going to encourage you to judge, but you don't have to judge if you have a different perspective and you go, okay, conflict's inevitable, and somebody is going to win and somebody's going to lose. You say that's a zero-sum game, but just give me a minute. Okay, so if you have a quadrant, right? Can you tell I love graphs? If you have a quadrant, and on this side you have your like you have your yourself, right? And 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 you have you have winners and losers. So you you have people who are going to win and you have somebody who's going to lose. So so right here is going to be lose lose. And then right here is going to be win and win. All right? You can imagine yourself on any of these things, okay? So you have, you, have a, you have a couple different ways you can go. So you could be a person who just avoids conflict. Anybody like that? Anybody just, you avoid conflict? I didn't know that about you. I'm learning. He's on my staff. I, I'm learning this. This is great. I, I, I needed to know that. It's really important. 
Okay, so if you have somebody who is collaborating, then both people are choosing to be both assertive and cooperative. So I'm going to write that. Okay? They're assertive and the cooperative. This is where you get your win-win. Do you know how much trust it takes to collaborate? A lot. Do you know what you can't be if you're going to be in the collaborating quadrant? At war. Right? But then you have this other, and down here, it's called competing. Okay? Competing. I'm actually going to delete these because I'm going to explain it a little bit more. Okay, you have competing. Competing is when you are both being uncooperative but assertive. Anybody ever been there? This is Jacob Dees' favorite style of conflict. He is loudly uncooperative. That's my three-year-old. All right, uncooperative and assertive. This is usually going to result in a lose-lose, right? This is where you get explosive conflict. Then you're going to have this lovely place right here called avoiding. Anybody an avoider? Right? Oh, you're an avoider. Okay, that's good to know. All right, so anybody who is avoiding. Avoiding, you're going to be unassertive and uncooperative. Unassertive and uncooperative. We're about to get back to the text, but I just think this is really helpful. It was very helpful to me. And then finally, you're going to have accommodating. Accommodating. And accommodating is when we are being unassertive, but very cooperative. Okay. So this is a lose-lose. This is a temporary lose-lose, but it's not as explosive. And this is where usually one person loses and the other person wins, all right? We all have a different natural style of conflict. But sometimes the root of our judgment towards another person is because they have a different style of conflict. They're trying to go after the same goal, okay? And our goal is to get us both over here to collaborative. Philip and I had seven wonderful first years of marriage. But it was partially because of this. I had an accommodating style of conflict, and he had a competing style. So where did we end up? I just accommodated him. He was super assertive. He was super competitive. I was super unassertive and incredibly cooperative. So when we had a conflict, I'll lose. Yeah, that's totally fine, because honestly, I would lose every time just to hang out with him. I adore him, and I still feel that way. But I just lose. Okay, I'll lose. This is the problem. In a relationship, if a person loses year after year after year after year, what happens, right? They can start to have resentment, and then you have to deal with that. So he had to learn how to be more cooperative, and I had to learn how to be more assertive, 
But what happens if I inject judgment into this? Do you see how this totally messes it up and we're not able to figure out how, right? Because what do I start calling him? You're just a jerk, right? You just don't care about me. But he's going, well, you just don't care about anything, right? Like, if you cared, you would, you would fight for this because that's his style, right? Well, I mean, you would never do anything you don't want to do. I'm going to remember the first time he said that to me, I was like, what? I'm so confused, right? Do you see what I'm saying? But in his mind, this is just the way it goes. Like, you would fight for it if you cared about it. You don't care about it. So, of course, I'll take it. Like, sure, that's totally cool. And in my mind, I'm going, if you loved me, you would be more passive and let me have my way. Do you see? Neither one of us has a bad motive. But because we're unaware, if we let judgment come in, then we lose our chance to figure out how to be cooperative because we're self-deceived. And so that marriage book doesn't help us. This is why if you live in judgment, that marriage book won't help you. You may say, this has been all about marriage. Believe me, you can apply this to your boss. You can apply this to your mom. You can apply this to anybody in your life. Management books will not help you if you are offended and judgmental towards your staff. Why? Because the Bible gets to the crux of the issue. When you judge and condemn others, you're going to be judged and condemned yourself because you're going to create a cycle where it just keeps bouncing back and where cooperation is so incredibly difficult. Thank you for letting me do that aside. I hope that it was helpful. We're going to get back to the text right now. Anybody see themselves in any of that? Did you recognize your natural style? Anybody? Yeah? Okay, that's awesome. That makes me happy. All right, I'm excited. All right, let's get to verse 3. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye? But don't notice and acknowledge the log that's in your own eye because I'm self-deceived because I've been judging. Or can you say to your brother, or how can you say to your brother, let me get the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, play actor, pretender. First get the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is what's so wonderful is when I give up my need to judge you, when I give up my need to, to decide what your motive is, and I just say, hey, when you said that to me, how are you thinking? Hey, when that happened, what were you thinking? When I do that, then I'm able to start practicing honesty with myself, which puts me in the position eventually to practice honesty with you. We all want to start practicing honesty with other people, right? It's like the first time we ever talked about the house habit practice and honesty here. There was a lady who walked up to one of our pastors and said, I cannot wait to go home and put this into practice with my husband. We're like, that's not a good idea. <laughs> you don't want to go home. And she's, I mean, she had in her mind, she was like, I am going to make a list and just practice the heck out of this honesty. But it starts on the inside, right? And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, hey, you're not going to have the pro proper perspective to help other people with their issues until you have admitted that you have issues and gotten help removing your own blind spots. 
And then I also love that it says it should only be done in relationship anyway. And you say, well, how is that possible? Well, it says brother, right? That's a relational term. It doesn't say stranger on the internet, right? I don't know very many people who have ever changed their mind by being disagreed with on Facebook, you know? I mean, really, it's almost like a complete waste of time to just argue with people on the internet. Instead, make a relationship and really learn from somebody, and then they will invite you into their life to give them perspective. So incredibly important. All right, let's go to verse 6. This is a really interesting scripture. Do not give that which is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, for they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now, there's lots of different ways to interpret this scripture. One thing that people often talk about is they say, don't give advice to people who don't want to hear it, right? But, but I think there's, once again, different layers to this. What about if we look at it even deeper? What if we're talking about in the whole context of the sermon where, where Jesus is, keeps telling you, don't let your life be defined by what other people think about you? He tells us this over and over again. He's like, hey, don't do this so that other people will see you. Don't fast so other people will see you. Don't pray so other people will see you. Instead, do it according to your, you know, so that your heavenly father will see you and he'll reward you, right? And if we think about our lives, our lives are precious. Our lives are precious to God. Even though they're just like, um, the Bible calls them like a, a, a mist, you know, that disappears so quickly. Even though they're, they're such short lives in view of eternity. They're precious to God. And they're all that we have. Our hours, our days, the way that we spend our lives, that, that's all that, that we really have. And he's saying, hey, don't throw it away. Don't spend your life caring so much about what other people think about you. Constantly worried that, that, that you're pointing out everybody else's flaws because you want everybody to know that you're on the right side of things. Don't do that. Don't throw your precious things. But I, I think it's also a, another layer of it is don't try to get from, from people who can't give you from a world system that can't give you what you're looking for, that can't treasure you, that can't protect you, that can't truly appreciate you, stop looking to them for something that they'll never be able to give you. And so many times we take our hopes and our dreams and our identity and and these beautiful pearls that God's given us, and we're like, I know that I'm going to get my fulfillment from my boss and my job, and he's going to really appreciate me. I know that my relationship's really going to define me. I know that, do you see what I'm saying? We have good moments, but ultimately they cannot fill the God-shaped hole in our lives. And only when we put our treasures, because remember it talked about it just a moment ago, it said don't put your treasures here on earth, but put them in heaven. And here again he's saying, hey, don't take your treasures. And throw them to a system that's never going to be able to care for them. That's just going to end up destroying you. Instead, remember to do things my way. To find your identity 
in me. All right, let's keep going. Prayer and the Golden Rule. I like the way that this is titled. Verse 7. Ask and keep on asking, and it will be given to you. Seek and keep on seeking, and you will find. Knock and keep on knocking, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who keeps on asking receives, and he who keeps on seeking finds. And to him who keeps on knocking, it will be opened. What man is there among you? Who, if his son asks for bread, will instead give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake. If you then, evil, sinful by nature as you are, know how to give good and advantageous gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven, perfect as he is, give what is good and advantageous to those who keep asking him? Do you see the two pictures? In the first picture, the person is giving their greatest treasure, and it's being destroyed. In the second picture, they are asking and seeking and being rewarded by a God who loves them and cares for them and is willing to give them treasure. Do you see the difference? No matter what you give to the world system, it will never be enough. But when you continue to seek after God, when you continue to knock at those doors, when you continue to be relentless in your relationship with him, when you continue to be relentless in the building of the kingdom, when you continue to pursue all of those things, right? Then God does give us good gifts. He gives us good gifts. You may say, oh, is this all about cars or this? The older I get, the more that just seems like the most absurd interpretation ever. Because what I want more than any kind of material possession is peace. What I want more than any kind of bank account is joy. What I want more than anything is true strength. And the things that come from a relationship with God, those are the true treasures of life. Then you can understand why, why the person who wrote the book of Proverbs or much of the book of Proverbs, the wisest man who ever lived, said that it is better to be content in a poor situation than unhappy when you're wealthy. Why? Because contentment is really the great treasure, that peace that comes from a deep fulfillment of knowing that you are God's and that your identity is truly secure in him. God's willing to give us great gifts, but are we willing to keep knocking? Are we willing to keep seeking? Are we willing to keep asking with certainty, with great belief that he is there? You know, I I think that this is something that's so incredibly hard for our right now culture. We want like microwave Christianity, right? Like we show up and and we've spent the last 25 years like wrecking our souls, (laughs) just feeding it every kind of thing. And we show up, we're like, all right, I'm going to come to a church service and I'm going to feel better, right? And instead you come and you cry the whole time. You're like, I didn't feel better. I feel worse. It's a process. Keep showing up. I don't really understand everything I'm reading in the Bible. Cool. Skip over that part. Keep reading. I don't know that that God's really hearing me when I pray. Get that. Keep praying. 
because it's a process. It takes time. We have to keep seeking. We have to keep asking. We have to keep knocking. Is God there? He absolutely is. Does he meet us in our moment? He absolutely does. But there's still a process for us to move from one side to the other, for us to, to change our habits, for us to change the way that we think. The Bible says, you know, change your life by changing the way you think, right? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's a process to that. But if we don't give up, and what keeps us from giving up is when we understand that God's a good father. It's that picture, right? Because I'll tell you what makes me give up. I don't know if it's what makes you give up, but this is what makes me give up, is when I start being convinced that God is never going to answer me, that I've just done too much, or I've been too this, or it's too late. When I don't remember that he's my father and he wants to give me a good gift, that's when I want to give up. When I'm not really convinced that he's going to answer me, that's when I want to give up. That's when I want to stop showing up. That's when I want to stop pursuing him. That's when I want to stop is when I'm like, I don't, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. But when I stop and I go, wait a second, when I open my mouth to pray, he hears me. When I open my Bible, it reads me. When I spend time serving and in the disciplines we're going to talk about, when I fast, when I do these different things, it matters. I'm going to keep showing up. I'm going to keep knocking. I'm going to keep asking. I'm going to keep seeking because he is faithful. What's amazing is that the people I know who've spent their life pursuing God pursue God harder now than they ever did before. Why? Because he's just that good. Because he showed up before. And they're like, ah, I know there's more. I want more. The more that we pursue God, the more that we ask, the more that we seek, the more that we knock, the more that we really will want to. Isn't that a beautiful thing? I really believe that. All right, let's go to verse 12. So it goes through all of this. It's don't give what's holy to the dogs, you know, ask, keep asking, all of this. And then it says this, and, and I love it because it, it takes it from being kind of about us and don't judge and all of these things, and it turns it back again to other people. So then in everything, treat others the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the essence of the law and the writing of the prophets. It's just another invitation to be like God to treat others correctly, to not just be focused on what you can get out of the situation. All right, let's keep going. Verse 13, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad and easy to travel is the path that leads the way to destruction and eternal loss. And there are many who enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow and difficult to travel is the path that leads the way to everlasting life. And there are few who find it. Now I want us to think about how many paradoxes there are in this sermon. Because at the very beginning it says, live like a city on a hill, Right? You're salt of the earth. You're, you're, you don't hide the, the light. And then it tells you, don't do good things so that other people will see you. Right? So it's like, live like a city on a hill, but also do this. And then it goes even narrower. 
And it says the way that you live, right, the way that you live is actually a really different way to live. And if you want to pursue my way, it's going to be really narrow. There's not going to be a whole lot of people who are going to want to live this way. At the very beginning, I told you that, that Jesus tells you up front that if you really live the way he wants you to live, truly forgiving, not coveting, not being a part of the system that buys into this world, right, that, that you will be persecuted for it. Not because of your political stance, just because people who live that way are annoying. They make you feel, ah, I don't know. If I, they, 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 they go against what you think it should be. Why, why won't you just join in with all this gossip? Like what you, you know, I'll tell you the truth. I had a friend today who I said something positive after they said something negative, And I've been friends with them for a really long time. And it was really funny because they started, like, making fun of me. And they were like, yeah, you're just, you're just being this or you're being that. And I know they were teasing, but at the same time, I know that, that there was something there. Do you, do, you, do you see what I'm saying? Like when you, when you connect with people and you, something's changed on the inside of you because you asked and you seeked and you knocked, right? Seeked? Is that right, Shell? Sought? Thank you. I knew that did not sound right. When, when you did all those things and God started giving you that good gift of a different perspective and you stopped maybe judging in that area because we all know judgment comes in layers, but then you, you go back into a relationship where you always were the person that was safe to gossip to or who they could be negative with and you aren't that person anymore, you're going to get pushback. And so here we have in the scripture where it's saying it's a narrow road. You know, one thing about really narrow roads is that sometimes you have to walk single file. Anybody ever been in that situation? Right? It's like you're standing with your family, walking, just hanging out. And then all of a sudden it gets narrower and narrower. And you're like, oh, well, all right, we're going to stand. We're going to, we have to get in single file. And I, I, I think that's kind of a little bit of the picture here is that you may have to go it alone, but, but I think it's also a really good picture for us here of you're going to have to take personal responsibility for your journey. It can't be anybody else's journey. It can't be your pastor's journey. It can't be your Bible teacher's journey. It can't be anybody else's journey. You have to take, ultimately, if you really want to enter this gate, of, of you have to take personal responsibility for it. So that in any season, no matter where you are, you're knocking and you're seeking and you're looking. And I've been in all kinds of different seasons in a lot of different churches in different denominations. And sometimes I showed up on Sunday and I was like, yes, I've just been convicted and called on the carpet. And that was exactly it. And sometimes I showed up on Sunday and I still felt that way, even though the person hadn't hardly said anything. Why? Because I've made a decision that when I walk in the house of God, God is going to speak to me because I'm going to knock and I'm going to seek and I'm going to look until I find something. Do you see what I'm saying? It doesn't matter what the tradition is. Because God's there. He's going to, do you see? Do you see? It's a narrow gate. It's a narrow gate of personal responsibility. You may say, well, actually what they're talking about there is Jesus. You're right. Isn't it wonderful how you can read the Bible in so many different layers? Jesus is the narrow gate. He is the one way. <laughs> That's what we believe as Christ followers. There's, there's one. I mean, how can you believe that there's one way to heaven? 
that is what Jesus' followers believe, is that Jesus Christ is the one way to heaven, that he is the hope of the world. But we don't just believe that he's the only way to heaven. We believe that he's the only way to abundant life here on earth. We believe that he's the only access to the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us and gives us access to unending ability to love others and to do good and to creatively change culture so that things are never the same again. That's what we believe as Christ's followers, but it's a narrow road. And please don't be mistaken. I have to remind myself all the time. I can't judge because you know what sometimes happens when we judge is we start giving somebody else power over our lives. And the Jesus way is taking personal responsibility for that journey and partnering with him. All right, let's keep going. Beware of the false prophets, teachers, who come to you dressed as sheep, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the unhealthy tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Therefore, by their fruit will you recognize them. Okay, I want to talk about just really briefly the difference between judgment and discernment. Okay, because anybody a little bit confused by this passage after the whole thing after judgment, it's like, hey, you're going to know them by their fruit. But what I'm not supposed to judge. Oh, my goodness. Where do I put my hands? You know what I'm saying? It's like, I, I don't. Where's the handle here? But there's a difference between judgment and discernment. Judgment is when I am labeling someone by what I believe to be true about their motives and their actions, right? And I am treating them like an object or a problem to be overcome. Do you see what I mean? So it's my outward way of being towards you. I am judging you. My inward way of being that's affecting my outward behavior. Does that make sense? Discernment is when I have decided how much you are allowed to impact me. Discernment is when I have decided how much you are allowed to impact me. It's different because it has a different result. You can be judging and not discerning because you can, just like I was doing, right? So I can be allowing Philip's behavior to truly impact me. I'm talking about like impact me on a core level, right? I can be going, man, you're going to determine how I feel about myself. You're going to determine, you're going to have all of this power over me, right? But I'm judging you at the same time because my way of being towards you is completely being at war. This is what you have to take personal responsibility for is who's going to impact your life. I encourage you with all of my heart, do not talk, do not allow people to lead you or guide you in your life, whether it's in your career or whatever. When you look at their life, if their life is not a life that you would trade for, that you would, that you would want to live. I can remember one time I, 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 at one time I was going to go into some big firms and with law and all kinds of different things. And I can remember sitting down and looking at some of the partners. And this was the question I asked myself because they were giving us advice on career. And I went, I wouldn't want to be any of you. And that was not a firm that I ever talked to again because their, their culture had created toxicity in their 
their, their families were, you were hearing the stories and you were like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. But so many times we allow people to influence us who we look at their lives and we're like, that's, that's not the kind of life you want to live. That's why celebrity culture can be so incredibly dangerous. It's because we're looking at somebody who has fame, but what about their life? What about the good fruit? Well, you could say, no, it's just talking about teachers of the law, but it, it's talking about teachers. Look at the fruit of their life. Who are you bringing in to be a teacher? What, what inputs are you allowing in your life? Is it bearing good fruit in other people's lives? Is it doing good things in other people's lives? What about the fruit on their tree? Do you see? We have to have discernment because every one of us is going to be, is going to be taught by the people in our lives, by the input in our lives, by the shows we watch, by all of these different things. We have to say, is it going to produce good fruit? Now, some of you know this about me, but about a year and a half ago, I stopped um, being on social media. I'm not telling you you have to quit, but I am going to tell you why I did. Is because it was changing the way I thought for the bad. It was making my thoughts shorter. I, it was like I, I saw the world in like short statements. And I was going, this isn't who I want to be. And then I read this article that said that social media use has been correlated with depression. Well, you may know my story. I deal with depression and anxiety. God has completely done a work in my life, but that is definitely something that I can still succumb to. I said, that's not, that's not a tree I'm going to eat from right now because that, that, that might be poisoning my life. I'm not going to keep eating that fruit expecting for it to bear something good in me. What is it in your life that's that? Once again, I'm not telling you about social media. I'm trying to give you an example. What is it in your life that you go, man, I know this isn't bearing good fruit. I can see the fruit isn't good, but I keep on eating it, and it's not good for me. Honestly, I don't need to have that tree as a primary source anymore. I'm often concerned when I talk to young people who who, um, are early in, in their marriage when they tell me that they're getting marriage advice from their friends who don't have good marriages. That's just stupid. (laughs) If you don't like their marriage, don't ask them for advice. Well, they know what not to do. No, they don't. Go talk to somebody who has a healthy marriage if you want healthy advice, right? If If you need money advice, don't go talk to somebody who's always broke. If you need advice on education, don't talk to somebody who, do you see what I'm saying? Like, it's just so important. And we go, oh, well, that makes sense, Destiny, absolutely. But we live so many times the opposite because instead of looking for the fruit that's going to help us and going to make us better and going to fill in the gaps in our life, we look for people who are a little bit more broken than us so that we can feel a little better about where we are, right? Because we're still living in that system of the world where where we're judging things. Do you see what I'm saying? All right. I love this. I love this, this, this sermon. So we're almost there. I'm talking about the Sermon on the Mount, not my sermon that I'm talking. Yeah, that would be really weird. She loves her own sermon. All right. Then it says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Many will say to me, On that day when I judge them, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and driven out demons in your name 
and done many miracles in your name. And then I will declare to them publicly, I never knew you depart from me, you who act wickedly. I think this is so important because he's differentiating here and saying the fruit that he's talking about that you should be judging isn't whether they can operate in power or whether they look really good on the inside. It's not their ability to worship. It's whether they're doing the will of the Father, whether they're living a life that measures up to these other things. And notice that it's all people-focused and motive-focused. Everything in the Sermon on the Mount, it's all about how you're treating others, and then it's all about not worshiping or not doing good things in order to be seen by others. It's this beautiful circle because we get our identity, and we get our fulfillment, and we get everything we need from the Father, and then we are expected to literally be conduits of his love into the world without expecting anything back. So we become, we become this passage, and that's the Jesus way of living. So our perspective comes from him, which allows us then to have the proper perspective on others. Because when I really have the perspective of heaven, a God who loved people, flawed people, me, people, so much that he sent his only son to die, then the way that I treat them, my willingness to judge them just goes away. I'm like, dear, I no. I become like the Quakers in the 16 and 1700s, and I look at every person in life who's going through a hard time or who has done something horrendous, and I go, oh, but for the grace of God, I'm right there. But for the grace of God, there go I as the way they said it. That sounds really fancy, but, but for the grace of God, that's me. How does saying that, where does that come from? That comes from a perspective that is a heavenly perspective, a perspective that's not just about the showy stuff, but a perspective that's about doing the will of God on the earth. And what is the will of God on the earth? Touching people, reaching people, caring about people, serving people. The Bible says it, right? If you want to be great in God's kingdom, what do you do? You're right about every single theological issue. No, you're the servant of all. Jesus talks about the judgment, and he talks about sending people to an eternal place of weeping and gnashing. I mean, this, this judgment, and what is going on in that judgment? It's whether or not people were willing to serve others. It's crazy. But the Jesus way of doing things is so incredibly radical where my identity so comes from God that I'm willing to serve everyone, everywhere, all of the time. And then it ends with this. And if you want to come piano and, and make the, the rest of this sound really good, I'd really appreciate it. You avoid conflict, so you're probably not going to tell me now, so that's good. So everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods and the torrents came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine 
and does not do them will be like a foolish, stupid man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods and the torrents came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great and complete was its fall. Two foundations. The world's way, the world's system, or God's way. The rock's Jesus, absolutely. But the rock is Jesus' way. It's submitting to Christ. Whenever um, I got married, my, my grandmother was giving me advice she said, baby, she said, your marriage is always going to have way more to do with you and Jesus than it does with you and Philip. Because it's always going to be about whether you're willing to submit to the Jesus way of loving and caring, of being the servant of all. Of whether you're willing to forgive. So I was preparing for this message I spent the last two or three days honestly struggling about a relationship in my life. Having conversations with a person. Anybody ever done that? You're in the shower. You know. Struggling. And I'm getting to this whole part about like judging and like same measure of mercy and judgment and all this stuff. And I'm remembering what it says earlier about forgiving. And I could just feel the Holy Spirit knock on my heart. Hey, little preacher girl. Talking to you. You said you wanted to build your house on the rock. Are you going to do it today? In this relationship? Are you going to choose to do it my way? Are you going to choose to forgive? And then not judge? and believe the best? Are you going to choose to give them the same benefit of the doubt that you would want somebody to give you? Because you don't get to do it halfway. You're either submitted to my way or you're not. And I'm standing in the church bathroom having to make a decision. Am I going to live Jesus' way or not? Or am I going to buy into the system of this world? The system that says I'm entitled because of what I see to judge. I have enough evidence to draw a conclusion. And that person is a problem and an issue in my life. I just need to overcome the obstacle. What am I going to choose? I'm not saying it was easy, but I stood in the bathroom and I said, oh, no, no, no. I I choose your way because I don't want my life to be built on the sand. I choose your way. I forgive. Lord, I repent for the last three days of me just judging and being at war with this person in my heart. I am sorry. Lord, give me a new perspective. I don't, I, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be that person. I want to 
I want to do what you say. I want to run after you. I want to believe that you have a solution here. I want to believe. Do you see what I'm saying? It seems so like simple, but when we throw it into our everyday life, it's hard. It's hard. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit. And this is my favorite part, and then we're going to be completely done. Verse 28, when Jesus had finished speaking these words, the crowds were astonished and overwhelmed (laughs) at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority to teach entirely of his own volition is what it says in the Amplified and not as their scribes who relied on others to confirm their authority. It makes me feel better to know that they were overwhelmed too. Because if you really read the Sermon on a Mount (laughs) with an open heart and allow it to start inspecting your life, I want to say all of us would be a little overwhelmed. Blessed are the peacemakers. You mean like every time? You're supposed to live like a city on a hill? Really? Like, oh. I'm called to be salt, so that means that I have to, okay, to be different. We keep going through all the different things. Lord, the bar is that high. I mean, so like, it's not just about not murdering people. I'm also not supposed to like stay angry and bitter towards them. You care how my heart is towards them? I'm not supposed to judge. I'm, I have to forgive everybody? Yeah. Because if you want to build your house on the rock, we have to have a completely different identity and a completely different citizenship. But what's so beautiful is all those things that you're wanting, just like it says in in this beautiful sermon. When you seek God's kingdom first, everything else will be added to you. That joy, that peace, that identity, that security. Put him first. What does that mean? It doesn't just mean in your giving. It doesn't just mean in your time. It doesn't just mean in your thoughts. It also just means in submitting to his way. Thank you for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and share our podcast. For more content from NCC and how to get connected, visit ncc.team.